So, Matt, I don't think I told you this, but a friend of ours, um, she was pregnant. She was having uh, a boy and she went into labor. So she jumps in the car with her husband. They take off to the hospital. Well, on the way to the hospital, she has the baby in the vehicle. No kidding. Yep. So the dad looks over and goes, well, we're naming him Carson. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, man, for that setup, I was expecting more. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> this is life, Matt. You build you up thinking it's going to be great, and then nope, it's not. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Man, I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. So preface all of this by saying, if you hear loud thundering, I apologize. We got a crazy freak thunderstorm here in Texas, and it is louder than I've heard a thunderstorm in a couple years. So I'm probably not going to be able to cut it all out, but you'll know what's happening. It'll it'll add some ambiance to the story. That's what time. I was fixed to say. It, it'll give us a little ambiance. Yeah, too bad it's not like a... Uh, Super scary story. And then, <laughs> but before we get into it, uh, say go check out the Podbelly Network at podbelly.com. We're proud members of the Pod- Podbelly Network, and you can find a list of shows that we're associated with. And I promise you, you're going to find something on there that you enjoy. We also want to thank tonight's sponsor, Lomi. We will talk more about them coming up. We love Lomi. Yeah. While you're on the interwebs doing your clickety-clacking and buying stuff, go over to patreon.com slash graveyardtales. You can sign up to become a patron, and we've got three different levels. Our $10 a month patrons, they get the video versions of recording these episodes. They get ad-free audio versions, plus they get the bonus episodes that we try to do every week, even if we're dark. We try to put out a Patreon episode just so you've got something over there. Yeah. And and Matt and I are working on brainstorming different things that we can do for our patrons. So we haven't added a new thing in a while. So we're we're trying to come up with something. But go over there, patreon.com slash graveyard tales. Speaking of putting out a Patreon episode when we're dark. Wanted to let y'all know, because I remembered before we started doing this episode. Normally, I don't, but I happen to look at the calendar. The next two weeks after this episode drops are our dark weeks. We've got one of those double dark weeks. But as y'all know, Matt and I don't like being dark for two weeks. We, we're we kind of afraid y'all will forget about us. <laughs> so uh, we like to keep putting our voices in your ear holes. So. What we're going to do is one of those two dark weeks, we're going to do a short bonus episode. We haven't decided what yet because we record these a little early. So uh, we'll figure that out between when we record this and the double dark weeks. But just want to let y'all know 
Don't expect a, a long main episode. It, it'll be a shorter, more like our Patreon episodes. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, Matt. So let's take a second and let's talk about one of our sponsors, Lomi. Now, I think y'all have heard us discuss Lomi before, and you know how much Matt and I and our families love our Lomis. And the thing is, it's summer now. I mean, it's warm, so our garden is going strong. Mm -hmm. And Ashley and I love to garden. And, and, you know, you have to put uh, nutrients back into the soil because these plants take it out. Well... We, were, we have been composting with very little success up to this point because usually you've got this big bin outside and mm-hmm. you throw crap yeah. in there. You got to turn it, all that. Not with the Lomi. As soon as we got the Lomi, our garden looks better. I've sent you pictures, Matt. Our garden is looking great because of the soil that we get out of our Lomi. And it actually makes composting fun because we can throw yeah. it into this thing. And they even have a clear top now, so you can watch the the com- yeah. the, the composting happen. I love that. It's amazing. I, it's like magic, man. Well, I, I got to say, when when I, we first got ours, and and we had done it five or six times, I, I said, I want I want a clear lid. I want to mm-hmm. see this thing working. And then, sure enough, yep, bam, you get a clear lid. You get to see this magic happen. Yep. And, and it, it is like magic. I mean, it, it Lomi actually turns your garbage into gold with at just the push of a button. It is incredible. I mean, a, a countertop electric composter uh, that will take your food scraps and turn it into dirt that you can use. And I'm a I'm a big plant guy, you know. Mm-hmm. I got, we got plants in the house. We got plants out on the patio, out by the pool. We've got a garden, so we're all the time working on stuff like this and having the Lomi. It's just been incredible because we're not spending a bunch of extra money on fertilizer, right? Um, you know, or, or prepackaged soil. I, I come in there and I get the dirt out of the loamy and I'm putting it in my house plants. We're putting it out in the garden. It's fantastic. And I'll tell you this, our trash does not stink. Oh, isn't that great, dude? I love yeah. that. That was an unexpected perk when I started realizing that my garbage can didn't smell like rotting food. It was amazing. That's exactly it. And and one thing, we, we have a problem with animals want to get in our trash because they can smell the food. Sure. We don't have that problem anymore because our food scraps go into the loamy. Right. And you can put meat and dairy products, not just vegetables like you would in normal composting bins. You can put your meat scraps, no bones. You can put your dairy products, you know, cheese and stuff like that. Don't pour a glass of milk in there. That's just silly. And you can put bread, and it will turn all of that into dirt. That, mm-hmm. like Matt said, just go throw it in your garden, and your plants are gonna love you. Your neighbors are gonna love you because your trash won't be drawing flies anymore. It'll be great. Right, nutrient-rich dirt from the scraps from your table, and you're not only saving money. You're not only keeping your trash from having all those food scraps. You're helping the planet because all of that 
all of that scrap that you throw in the loamy and get usable dirt mm-hmm. would go to a landfill. You can put it to use. All you have to do is get a loamy. So it, you, if you want to start making a positive environmental impact, if you want to have a great looking garden, if you really want to spruce up those house plants, um, or if you, you just want your garbage can to quit mm-hmm. smelling so right. bad, go to Lomi.com slash grave. That's L-O-M-I dot com slash grave, G-R-A-V-E, and use our promo code grave to get $50 off your Lomi. That's right. You can turn your food waste into dirt with the press of a button with Lomi. Use the code GRAVE, G-R-A-V-E, to save $50 at Lomi.com slash GRAVE. So, Matt, that's all the housekeeping that I've got. That was probably more than half the people wanted to hear. But (laughs) why don't you tell us, what are we talking about tonight, brother? So tonight we're we're gonna look at um, look at a, a famous maritime mystery, okay? But the cool thing about this one is we've somewhat solved it uh, in the last several years, right? Um, but when you consider how long this went without any real solid idea of what happened to these guys, you're gonna see why this is. One of the one of the biggest mysteries, uh, you know, to have to do with the with the sea and, and the navy, all that stuff, and it's Franklin's Arctic expedition. Mm-hmm. You know, John Franklin was um, one of the one of the captains that led an expedition in search for a Northwest Passage. You know, a way to get from Europe to Asia without having to go overland or without having to go all the way around the bottom of South America. Right. Right. Because that took a long time. Sure. Yep. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that, you know, before modern day methods of travel, how long it took for anything to be shipped or for you to take a trip. And like you said, if you were going to sail, think of where you had to go. I mean, yeah. This yeah. was, you know, before the, the Panama Canal and all that stuff. So you literally had to go down around everything. Well, think about it this way, too. Um, in in the late 1700s into the 1800s, um, the upper class in in Europe's um, in, in the Europe's western coast um you know, London, France, um, these, uh, these areas of, of high culture Mm -hmm. at the time, um, you would hear these things where so-and-so had a gown that was made from some type of Chinese silk, right? Or, you know, somebody had these, these shoes that were from the Orient. You hear it called that a lot in in the in the language of that time. And if if they were able to get that kind of material, it wasn't because they went down to their local tailor. Sure. Yeah. And said, I I want this, I, I want a, a scarf made of this, you know, Chinese silk. 
they didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And they really didn't have much of a way to get it. And for the people that did have that stuff, it means that somebody had to get on a ship and go from Europe all the way down mm-hmm. around South America and into Asia, make all of those purchases and then ship all that stuff back. It, it may, it, it, it could have taken six months to a year. Right. Right. To get this stuff because it wasn't exactly easy to make this trip. Mm-hmm. So in an effort to make that trip shorter to improve commerce, because this stuff, because it was so hard to get, it was, it was extremely valuable and, and desired and not just clothing, not, you know, tea, number one, I sure, mean, yeah. you know, teas from, you know, the Asian nations. Oh, they were the absolute top of the line that, and, and, and people in Europe, they wanted it. Yeah. They wanted it. They wanted silk. They wanted all of these other things that came from Asia and they just, there was no way for them to get it. So there was, I mean, there, there was, it was for more than just, Hey, we got to, we got to set out and explore the rest of this map because understand at this time, the, the map was pretty well set. Right. Right. By the mid, mid 1800s, you know, they pretty had a, pretty good idea of of where everything was with the exception of the arctic mm-hmm. you know and and the area that you know we would say is north north of canada you know nobody had really canada? gone up there <laughs> not much <laughs> <laughs> just a seal anyway, or two but but anyway, so you got an idea um ab- about what we're what we're discussing tonight but we're going to talk about Franklin's expedition and why it was such a mystery and what happened to these people. Right. And, and it's the, the mystery of this and how it stayed a mystery is the fascinating part um, to me. But the other fascinating part, which is going to be cool to talk about is just these people and what they put themselves through Mm -hmm. to do this. So as we always say, Go check our sources down at the bottom of the show notes. You can find where we found all this information. You can continue the research if you would like, because we're not going to be able to get to all of it. It's just, there's so much information. We're going to do our best, but we won't get to all of it. Now, the Franklin Arctic Expedition or the Lost Franklin Expedition, we'll probably refer to it as both throughout the episode, but it was a British voyage led by Sir John Franklin in an attempt to discover the Northwest Passage in in the Arctic, like Matt was saying. The expedition was set to sail in 1845 with two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror, and a crew of 129 men. So as we're talking, remember that number of men. That's a lot of people. Now, this comes from actually the the U.S. Naval Institute and their historical information on this says when Sir John Barrow took up the position as second secretary of uh, Admiralty of the United Kingdom in 1804, he inherited a legacy of European naval exploration that spanned back centuries. 
During his 41-year tenure in his position, Barrow advocated for the discovery of a Northwest Passage over Canada, providing an efficient means of traveling from the Atlantic to the Pacific Oceans. So over the ensuing decades, various noted explorers, including the famed William Edward Perry, set off for the Canadian Arctic in an attempt to map its myriad mysteries. So one such explorer, Royal Navy officer Sir John Franklin, found himself on several of these expeditions. In 1818, he served as second-in-command of an expedition in the area on board the ships Dorothea and Trent, and went on to lead two further expeditions in 1819 to 1822, and 1825 to 1827. So this this was not his first his first rodeo in the right. Arctic. Yeah, uh, he was well seasoned. Right, right. But by the time he was selected to lead yet another expedition in 1845, Franklin was no stranger to the treachery that lay ahead of him and his crew. But little did he know that he was about to set off on what would become one of history's greatest maritime mysteries. So, who is Sir John Franklin? We'll we'll look at that quickly. He was born April 16, 1786 in Spilsby, Lincolnshire, England. Now, he was an English rear admiral and explorer. And I'm going to show you my um childish Your rear admiral. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. See? You <laughs> That's why you and I get along so well, <laughs> is because my childish humor, Rear Admiral, sounds like some put down. You would call, why are you being such a Rear Admiral, man? Why are you being such a Rear Admiral? You're a Rear Admiral, and so I, I know it's a, a it's an esteemed position, but mm-hmm. th- there needs to be a better term for it because Rear says Ad- Rear, yeah, you know. Rear Admiral is still used today. <laughs> I mean, uh, the backside admiral is not much better. So I don't know what you, I mean, glad they didn't call it the butthole admiral. Mm. That's all I can say. I wouldn't have made it. Because that would, that would be a thing. Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, I mean, the butthole's in the back. So why not? The rear, you know, if they did that, I wouldn't be able to make it through this episode. I'd be laughing the whole time. (laughs) Oh, the English butthole admiral. I couldn't make it. Now, Franklin entered the Royal Navy at age 14 uh, and accompanied Matthew Flinders on his exploratory voyage to Australia in 1801 to 1803 and served in the battles of Trafalgar in 1805 and the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. So he commanded the Trent on Captain David Buchanan's Arctic expedition of 1818, which sought to reach the North Pole. From 1819 to 1822, Franklin conducted an overland expedition from the western shore of Hudson Bay to the Arctic Ocean, and he surveyed part of the coast to the east of the Coppermine River in northwestern Canada. After his return to England, he published a narrative uh, published narrative of a journey to the shores of the Polar Sea in the years 1819, 20, 21, and 22. And I'm... One of my problems with historical books is how long the titles are. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> they, yeah, they will put yeah. a paragraph as the title of an old book. Right, right. Well, they wanted you to know what it was all about. Nowadays, you know, they, <laughs> they'd, have, they'd have said, the trip. 
is yeah. all it would have been. <laughs> but back yeah, then, it's, we've gone from very specific titles to very vague uh-huh, titles. Uh-huh. You know? In twenty years, book titles are just going to be emojis. <laughs> You're just going to have a, a person waving and a ship as the title yeah, of the book. That's it. <laughs> I just get this. I, I I don't know. It seems like you know the the, the dumbing down of people. It mm-hmm. just you know I see this stuff and you're going. And it wouldn't surprise me a bit. Yeah, you know. Well, you remember we the went, movie? We went to something like that. Yep. You remember the movie Idiocracy? By Mike mm-hmm. Judd. Um, he said somewhere in there that people had gotten to where they they speak a combination of valley girl and grunts. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that, we're getting there. I grunt a lot when I talk. So I, I yeah. mean, I can't say anything, but all right. So let's look at the ships that Franklin was going to be captaining here. And this is from Royal Museums of Greenwich. Now the HMS Terror was built in Topsham, uh, Devon and launched in June of 1813. The ship was actually a bomb vessel, so it had an extremely strong hull, and it was built to withstand the impact of explosions. So this is a strong ship. Yeah. yeah. um, Terror actually began its career as a ship of war. Duh. Uh, It was involved in several battles of the War of 1812 against the United States. So it it was a tough ship. And might I say, very suitable for what they were about to undertake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and what a what a a badass name. Yeah. I mean, for a warship, I mean the HMS the Terror. Terror. Yep. Yeah, I mean that's cool. Yep, I like it. Um now the HMS Erebus was built by the Royal Navy in Pembroke Dockyard in Wales in 1826. Now when the terror's career as a bomb vessel came to an end. It became a ship of exploration. The ship ventured north to the Arctic in 1836 under command of George, George Back, where it suffered heavy ice damage in the aptly named Frozen Strait. So let's think about that for a minute, just to give you kind of an idea of the conditions. This was a bomb vessel built to withstand explosions. Mm-hmm. And it was damaged heavily by the ice in the Arctic. And I know we'll talk about that coming up, but the the way the ice moves up there, comes together and stuff, the weight of that crushing on a ship mm-hmm. is immense. So yeah. it, it 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 horribly damaged a bomb ship. Right. So, I mean, just think about that. Now, the Erebus joined the Terror for the next expedition to the opposite end of the Earth, the Antarctic, under the command of James Clark Ross. Now, the ships were completely refitted with additional strengthening and internal heating systems. Together, they circumnavigated the continent, and the expedition did much to map the areas of Antarctica, the Ross Ice Shelf, and set the scene for future polar explorations in that area. So these ships are pretty famous, but mm-hmm. even before this. Um, the ship sailed into the Antarctic, which was 
just as perilous as the North, North, this says, for three successive years in 1841, 42, and 43. Now, in one incident, they were caught in a stormy sea full of fragments of rock-hard ice, and the ice smashed against them so violently that their masts shook in a beating that would have destroyed any ordinary vessel. So, so Adam's right. You know, the, these were the ships to use for this. Mm-hmm. I mean, they mm-hmm. were, they, they were well suited for this job. They could, you know, they, they were hardened against the elements. So, you know, they, you got to admit they, they started off in really good shape. Right. Right. Now, even more dangerously, in March of 1842, the Erebus and Terror came close to destroying each other. So the Erebus was suddenly forced to turn across Terror's Pass in in order to avoid crashing headlong into an iceberg, which had just become visible through the snow. Terror couldn't clear both Erebus and the iceberg, so a collision was inevitable. The ships crashed violently together, and their rigging became entangled. The impact floored the crew members while masts snapped and were torn away. The ships were locked in a destructive stranglehold at the foot of the iceberg until eventually the terror surged past the iceberg and Erebus broke free. I just added that because I thought it was wild. I know. I, I, I read it, too, and I, I was like, why are you getting so damn close? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. these are not small ships, you know? Right. You know, like, give give yourself a wide berth. I was going to say, they, the, the Antarctic is not a small place either, though. So yeah, they just, had room I, to spread out. Only thing I could guess is that as the, as the ice, you know, got heavier, that the path that you took got more narrow. Sure. And yeah. so they were traveling probably closer together. And, and visibility was obviously not great because they didn't see an iceberg because mm. of the snow until they were on top of it. Right. So, I mean, there's a really good chance that they, they were having a hard time telling how far away from one another they were anyway. Yeah. It just seems absurd that these two ships would have collided like this. But <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, I, that's that's me who's, you know, there's you know, never there's, never been on a ship like that ever. <laughs> yeah. And there's conditions that we aren't privy to right. that would cause that. And, you know, it could be the whiteout conditions that they were under that forced them to be that close so they could see each other. Yeah. You know, yeah. they needed to navigate off of one another. But anyway, let's look at what the Northwest Passage is, was, were. When I don't know um, <laughs> the the thing that the Franklin expedition was going to find. So the Northwest Passage spans roughly 900 miles from the north at, uh, North Atlantic, north of Canada's Baffin Island, in the east to the Beaufort Sea, north of the U.S. Uh, in in the state of Alaska uh, to the west. So it's located entirely within the Arctic Circle, less than 1,200 miles from uh, the north. So it's less than 1,200 miles from the pole. up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, traversing the frozen Northwest Passage historically has required a hazardous journey through thousands of giant icebergs that could rise up to 300 feet above the surface of the water. 
and huge masses of sea ice that could seal the passage and trap ships for months at a time. Yeah. So before I go any further, think about that. Oh, you're out oh, yeah. there. You're in in the Arctic Ocean, and you're dodging 300 foot tall icebergs. So Lord knows how much is underwater on one of those icebergs. And then you've got sea ice encroaching on every side and it smashes together. That's what I was saying earlier with the weight of the sea ice smashed and it traps you for months. Mm-hmm. What? No, I ain't doing that. Sorry. <laughs> Find somebody else for your Northwest passage expedition. And my thing is, is you, you've got to be prepared that this could happen to keep 129 crew members alive and kicking. Right, right. I mean, right. you just can't go, oh, we didn't expect this. You had mm-hmm. to expect it. Yep. And you had to expect to be stuck for long periods of time. So had to have plenty of food and fresh mm-hmm. water and all those things to keep everything going while you were waiting to get unstuck. Yeah. Well, and thank God they retrofitted the these two ships with heating inside. Right. Which would help if you got trapped. And I know if you look up other expeditions, they got people that are having to stand on the, the bows of the ship and crack ice with long poles, mm-hmm. push the stuff out of the way. The, the ship's mast is getting frozen from freezing rain and snow and it's like an ice skating rink on the deck of the ship. It's just crazy. Now, the idea of a northwest sea route from Europe to East Asia dates back at least to the second century AD in the world maps of Greco-Roman geographer Ptolemy. Now, Europeans developed interest in the sea passage after the Ottoman Empire monopolized major overland trade routes between Europe and Asia in the 15th century. So it was the Northwest Passage that captured the imaginations of many of the world's famed explorers, including Jacques Cartier, Sir Francis Drake, Sir Martin uh, Frobisher, and Captain James Cook. So these are some big names in Mm -hmm. uh, uh, captaining here. All, though, met with failure, and many met with disaster. Sir Humphrey Gilbert, whose treatise on the passage inspired many voyages by others, drowned during his own attempt in 1583. Henry Hudson, his young son, and seven others were cast adrift by a mutinous crew in 1611 when his discovery of Hudson Bay proved to be an icy trap instead of the passage that he sought. Yeah. So let's look at let's look at Franklin's expedition. Um, so it was, uh, it was the morning of May 9th, 1845, and the expedition set off from Greenhithe, Kent. Now the ships first traveled to, uh, Stromness, Orkney Islands in Northern Scotland. And from there, they went to Greenland with the help of the HMS Rattler and the transport ship. Barreto Jr. Now, when they reached Greenland's Disco Bay, it's D I S K O. <laughs> I was oh. like, Disco Bay, you know. <laughs> you can tell by the way I use my walk. 
That's right. They, you know, they got, you know, disco balls and strobe lights and stuff. Yep. You know, it's where, hey. it's where it came from. It's where disco originated. You thought the northern lights were pretty? You should see the, the giant disco balls in Disco Bay. That man... When they really get going, it'll light it up down into like New York and everything. It gets crazy. That's right. That's right. But while they were in Greenland, they got more provisions. Um, and the crewmen on board the Terror and the Ariba sent what would be their final letters to their loved ones back home. Now, during this stop, five men were discharged. It, it doesn't say why. Um, but that reduced the final number of crew members to 129. So when we talk about 129, this is this is after the voyage has begun. They they cut it down from 134 to, to 129. Now the final sighting of the expedition by Europeans took place in July of 1845, when the whalers Prince of Wales and Enterprise spotted the Terror and Erebus in Baffin Bay. And they were they were hanging there waiting for the conditions to improve enough to get safe passage across Lancaster Sound. So I'll give you these landmarks. You can kind of you can see diagrams of what his path was, um, but it'll kind of give you an idea of of where they are um, coming and, and where they came from to get there. Now, the expedition members spent the winter of 1845-1846 at a camp on Beachy Island before heading south to King William Island. Now, before reaching King William Island, the two ships, uh, Erebus and Terror, became trapped in sea ice. Now, this was September of 1846. So, pretty early in the expedition. Right, right. I mean, they... They left, they left in May of 1845, and now it's not even a year and a half later, and they're stuck, okay? Mm. Now, this is, this is what Adam was referring to earlier about just thinking about being stuck. The ships remain trapped even during the summer months, and on, um, and on June 11th, 1847. Okay. They've been there stuck from mm-hmm. September of 1846 to June of 1847. Nine months, 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 almost a year. Yeah. They are stuck. They are living on this boat. Can you imagine no. just not only being stuck there, but wondering, are we ever going to get free? Are we mm. going to run out of food? You know, imagine the 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 hostility. Oh, you know, geez, dude. the the fear, the worry. You're never going to see your families again. I mean, you know, you can't. I can't even fathom how high tensions were at this yeah. time. You probably got sixty people, sixty something people per ship, and you're having a stick in these small quarters. With sixty something men not yeah. moving, nothing to do. Yeah, for nine yeah. months. You're not hanging out on the deck. It's too cold. You're mm-hmm. not, it's not like you're gonna go and jump in the pool. I mean, no, no pool. You know, and they're probably it's ice. not. <laughs> probably not keeping the uh, 
internals of that ship super warm. They're keeping it just warm enough to where you don't die. Right. Because if they're stuck for almost a year, yeah. you're not going to have it a balmy 80 degrees in there. Because you've got to conserve any wood mm-hmm. or heating oil that mm-hmm. you're using. Because again, you don't know how long you're going to be. But on on June 11th of 1847, uh, Sir John Franklin died at the age of 61, and he was on board the HMS Erebus. Now, they didn't do an autopsy, so the ship surgeon um, never did an autopsy, and Franklin's grave has never been found, probably because he was buried in the ice. Yep, um, probably. But now, under the command of Captain Crozier, the two ships were carried south by the pack ice and the prevailing wind. So it wasn't so much that when they got unstuck that they were, okay, we're back on track. I mean, they were essentially at the mercy of the ice and the wind. Mm -hmm. And it began to carry them. Now, it it got them unstuck. But, you know, they really weren't. They they at this point they weren't on track for their original expedition. Now during the winter of 1847-1848, nine officers and 15 men fell ill and died. And they were within sight of King William Island, which was where they were headed, and they were still just they couldn't move. They were still somewhat stuck in the ice. So Crozier decided on Good Friday, which was April 22nd of 1848, to abandon the ships and begin to walk to the nearest European settlement at Back River. They never made it. Now, the decision was, they didn't come to this decision because of lack of food, but it was probably closer related to the health of the men. Yeah. They had lost a lot of weight. They were weak. Some of them had bleeding gums and loose teeth, uh, echimosis and sub- subcutaneous hematomas. Echimosis is like that red, um, splotchy. Like if you, if somebody slapped you and you know busted oh, yeah. a lot of blood vessels in your face and that reddish yep. purple. That's echimosis. So, and that happens from lack of nutrition, right? So right. If you're the, not eating the proteins and stuff that you need, then you can get those small weakened. blood vessels will will burst. Yep. Those yep. little capillaries, and you'll get these patchy places all over your skin. Um, but they were having trouble breathing. You know, they were just they were wiped out, and it really looked like a lot of them. We're suffering from scurvy, um, which, you know, are you scurvy dog? You know, know, scurvy is from uh, vitamin C deficiency. Right, right. Um, And and here's an interesting thing. You've ever heard, um, you know, uh, naval people be called like limeys? Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Limeys? Well, that came from the fact that... um, a lot of these ships carried limes. Hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. In, in order to prevent the crew developing scurvy from the vitamin C deficiency. Right. Makes you sense. Know, so everybody's sitting there sucking on limes and, you know, another, uh, you know, a, a, a foreign army sees them and they're like, what, look at these idiots. They're just sucking on yeah. limes, a bunch of limeys. 
You limey bugger. (laughs) Now, Crozier planned to continue overland to the south of King William Island and then cross to the mouth of the Great Fish River on the mainland, where he hoped to get help from an outpost of the Hudson Bay Company. Now, they were dragging lifeboats on sledges. Um, He and his men progressed down the western coast of King William Island, traveling over the frozen ice along the coastline because this made their passage smoother than over the rough land. So they stayed close to the coast because they didn't have these, you know, hills and valleys and rough terrain that was already covered in snow and ice, making it even more treacherous. So down towards the coast, it was a lot smoother and they could, you know, they could move a little bit easier. Um, But even with this, they only managed to cover about one and a half miles or so in a day. Oh my Lord. So in a day, they traveled one. I mean, you think about it. We got people that can run a mile in four minutes. These people were going a mile and a half in a day. That's how slowly it went. And you're right. It's not, they're just not out for a walk. I mean, they're dragging equipment with them. Plus they're sick. Mm -hmm. You know, they're cold. They're hungry. Yeah. I mean, even if this was a little bit of a smoother path, it, you know, it wasn't easy by no means. But not a single man survived the journey, although some did reach the mainland, and the bodies of 30 men were subsequently found near the Great Fish River. Now, an old Eskimo woman would later tell the story of how the, uh, the, the ill men had fallen down and died as she saw them trudge through the rigid ice. That's just so, crazy, man. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this was, this was heavy, heavy, heavy duty stuff. I mean, this was mm-hmm. not like, we're off. No. Yeah. I mean, you know that a lot of these men, especially if they had been involved with any of Franklin's other expeditions, they knew that there was a chance that they would not return. Right. You know, but to some folks, it it was worth the risk because of, you know, the the wealth and the notoriety that they would receive. I mean, in in reality, these crewmen they 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 got their pay, and they were like, yeah, you know, so you gotta go find another ship to get on. I mean, you know, it was you know the captains and the leaders of these expeditions were going to be the ones that went down in the history books. Hopefully, Um, the pay was worth it. Yeah, but. You know, a lot of these captains did did good at taking care of their crew, making sure they not only had what they need, they had extra, you know, so they knew they could count on them, mm-hmm. um, especially in a situation like this. I mean, you know, you, you get stuck in the ice for nine months. I mean, at some point, somebody's just going to go, hey, guess what? This sucks. I'm not listening to you anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, next thing you know, You've got a mutiny and a riot on a ship out stuck in sea ice. Right. Right. You know, so total chaos. But, that you know, when they got off the boat and they started walking uh, to King William Island, you know, it was it was pretty much sealed at that point. Mm. They, they weren't going to be able to make it. Disastrous decision. Yeah. Now, for two years, there was no word from Franklin or any of his men. So 
1848 rolls around, and Franklin's second wife, Lady Jane Franklin, helped persuade the Admiralty and government to launch what became perhaps the largest search effort in naval history. For years, overland and sea expeditions scoured the area. Uh, in, in the spots where the ships had been sent out, but found only a few artifacts and some scattered human remains. Yeah. So they're going, I mean, think about it. This is not an area conducive for search and rescue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've got moving pack ice. You've got, it's crazy. Yeah. And when you said it, it was, you know, the largest search and rescue expedition at the time. I mean, the the group after group just piled out going out to look for these people. Mm-hmm. Thirty two different expeditions took place right. between eighteen forty nine and eighteen fifty nine, um, to find these people. Mm-hmm. And in eighteen fifty, a search um expedition at Beachy Island turned up the first traces of the lost expedition. This is eighteen fifty. Okay, mm-hmm. they've been gone for about two years. Um, they found an abandoned camp from the winter season of the eighteen of eighteen forty five, eighteen forty six. Um, but at that uh, at that winter camp, they found the graves of three men: Petty Officer John Torrington, Royal Marine Private William Brain, and Able Seaman John Hartnell who were all members of Franklin's expedition. Now, no other information regarding the the movements of Franklin's expedition were discovered at that time. Right, right. And they did some forensic work on these bodies that they found. And again, think of forensic work for the time period. It's not like they had, you know, computers to be able to map the DNA and and find everything. But they did some forensic work and they found that the men had suffered from starvation, scurvy and lead poisoning. So uh, they say that that latter illness, lead poisoning was probably caused by contaminated tin cans. Mm. And it was thought to have played a significant role in the expedition's demise. So we take, for granted nowadays that if we have canned food like that those canned beans that you got in there they're good man as as long as you don't see the ends popping out because of botulism Mm -hmm. then if they're sealed you're good those beans will last you for years but that wasn't the case in the 1800s with canned food it was a different process materials used to make the cans were different right you know, uh, uh, sanitizing all that stuff wasn't mm-hmm. really even considered. Right, right. Now, researchers also discovered that uh, some bones bore cut marks suggestive of cannibalism. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this it's a touchy subject, mm-hmm. uh, cannibalism, and, and people don't want to talk about it. But, in a lot of these expeditions that happen like that, and and I'm sure we'll touch on more at another date, but a, a lot of these people resorted to cannibalism because they were malnourished, 
they were dying. Hadn't eaten in weeks, months, whatever. And their shipmates are just dropping dead around them. Mm-hmm. They see no other choice. Right. So as horrible as cannibalism is, you you can't condemn the people for doing that. They were trying to right. survive. I mean, it's not like they were, you know, some kind of wacko that just decided, or, hey, I like to eat people. Yeah. I mean, or murdering them to get the meat. Right. But, you know, when you're when you're faced with starvation in these desperate situations and all you can all you can concern yourself with is how to live another day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cannibalism seems like the only way out. You don't have any other food. Um, you know, there's there's nothing to hunt. You can't fish. Um, right. I mean, it it you've you've got nothing else. There's no vegetation. Nothing. There's just mm-hmm. ice. Yeah. And yeah, you know, but but the problem with it is, is number one, you know, when we've we've talked about cannibalism before, um, you know, it it causes some internal problems because yep. your yep. body is, you know, human human body isn't meant to digest human meat. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it causes some problems. The other aspect of this is these people weren't dying healthy. Yeah, um, exactly. They were exactly. already sick. So, you know, their bodies were already beginning to, you know, atrophy and and just fall apart and with whatever illness was was afflicting yep. them. And then we're going to eat it. Look, cook it or not. I mean, if you saw an emaciated cow, um, you know, out there just dragging along and just looks awful. You know, it looks like it could just drop dead any minute. And a farmer says, that's your supper tonight, son. You'd be like, -uh. (laughs) nah, not for me. You find me one of them healthy ones over there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they didn't have a choice. So, you know, you wouldn't eat, you know, a disease ridden cow. But these people were forced to eat a disease ridden human. Mm -hmm. Um, So, it, it, like I said, all they were worried about is living one more day. Because one right. more day would get them closer to the chance that somebody would find them and rescue them. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, well, you, they had to understand we, we're not going to make it out of this unless we get rescued. Mm-hmm. Well, and think about it this way: they that a lot of the men it says they had lead poisoning from the the cans. Mm-hmm. We we hear a lot of talk about heavy metal toxicity in large fish like tuna mm-hmm. and stuff like that because they're high up on the food chain. It's the same scenario. Mm-hmm. You could get tuna and cook it, but you're not going to cook out the heavy metals. Right. So no matter what you did, you were contributing more to your lead poisoning if you were eating meat from someone who died of lead poisoning. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, it was sort of good that it sustained them for a little bit, but they were contributing to their demise in the long run from all those negatives. Now, the majority of Franklin's crew had simply vanished. Yeah. Couldn't couldn't find any other evidence of them. As my granddad would say, neither hide nor hair of them. That's right. Now, the search for the lost Franklin expedition continued through 
the 19th and 20th centuries. So over the years, a rough sequence of events was gradually assembled based on information from search expeditions, Inuit oral accounts, and the work of explorers. So one key resource was the Victory Point Note, which was dated April 25th, 1848, and written by Crozier and Fitzjames. It was found in May of 1859. It was tucked into a stone cairn on King William Island. So that that tells you at least Crozier and Fitzjames made it to King William Island. Now, according to the note, the Franklin expedition spent the winter of 1845 to 46 on Beachy Island, and then in the summer of 46, it traveled down Peel Sound. Off King William Island, the Erebus and Terror became trapped in the ice, forcing the men to spend the winters of 46 and 47 and 47 and 48 on the island. Sir John Franklin died on... uh, Uh, in June of 1847, like Matt said. And the note also stated that Crozier, Fitzjames, and the crew had abandoned the ships and were heading for what is now Back River on the Canadian mainland. The 248-mile journey required 248 miles, Matt. And you mentioned that they were making a mile and a half a day. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. So this journey required the 105 survivors at this point to traverse King William Island and cross the sea ice before reaching the river. Later, Inuit people in the area told searchers that 35 to 40 white men had died near the mouth of Back River. However, the location of the other crew members was unknown. So one searcher for the Lost Franklin expedition, Robert, McClure, later Sir Robert, entered the passage from the west. He became locked in ice for two winters. Again, somebody locked in the ice. And then he sledged overland to another rescue ship coming from the east, thus completing the first one-way transit of the Northwest Passage in 1854. So, all of this with the Franklin Expedition and... uh, Sir Sir Robert McClure made it technically. But finally, in the 2010s, the mystery of what had happened to the two ships was solved. Sort of. A combination of research into Inuit oral histories, the continued work of modern explorers, and the use of high-tech underwater equipment allowed scientists to locate first the Erebus in Queen Maud Gulf in 2014, and then the Terror in Terror Bay in 2016. Both wrecks were found off King William Island. Numerous dives recovered various artifacts. Yeah. So if you can find the um, uh, uh, pictures of this, it's cool seeing this stuff. You want to know something else that's kind of cool about this? Hmm. Um, Terror Bay was already called Terror Bay. Yeah. It had nothing to do with the ship being found there or anything. Which seems like a weird coincidence I know. or fate. <laughs> That's what I thought. Now, do you you know I'm I'm not a big believer in coincidence, so maybe it was fate that the terror 
went down in Terror Bay. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't it, know. It's kind of weird, but. So these discoveries highlight the importance of Inuit oral histories in gleaming information about the expedition. However, for many years, the accounts were dismissed. And Matt and I were talking about that a little bit ago that before we started recording, they just kind of ignored a lot of the oral history from them. Well, in the 1850s, British searchers interviewed Inuits on King William Island and were told of the crew's suffering, which included the cannibalism. But the claims caused outrage in England and the Inuit stories were rejected. So yeah, it, it's kind of, it's kind of sad that, that that all happened that because of the look like you and I were talking about of cannibalism, right? They rejected the story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was just like, even, um, even lady Franklin, just completely denounced the idea of cannibalism. I mean, it it was almost like that was some kind of huge disgrace if they had resorted to cannibalism. Um, I, I, I don't, and it must have been a cultural thing at the time um, because I don't think as horrific as it would be if we heard a story about that now, um, I, I don't think that anybody would have this, oh, my God, I can't believe it. There you is know, no way they did that. We can't let the, our, you know, our loved one died on this trip, and but he would have never resorted to cannibalism. Right. Well, he might right. have, and is it that big a deal if he did? Right. You know, he was trying to save his life, for crying out mm-hmm. loud. But no, they, they didn't want to hear that. So you're right, Adam. They did. They they just completely discounted the Inuit stories. But the funny thing about that is, is they always had that information and never pursued it. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, the the net silk Inuit, as early as 1854, which was just six years after the expedition was declared lost, um, a, a Hudson Bay fur trader named John Ray talked to an Inuk man about the the expedition, and the Inuit told Ray stories of the meeting the starving men and gave him relics from the Franklin expedition to back up their story. Mm-hmm. But when Ray came back and, and told these stories about cannibalism, um, they started a smear campaign that was initiated by lady Jane Franklin. So, um, it, it was almost like she was being scandalized because of these yeah. stories. And there were other, there were other factors in it too. Like, um, the, the writings of Charles Dickens were, uh, kind of shaded, you know, towards this being, uh, you know, a really a terrible thing or that these Inuit people would have been, uh, dumb tribal people, you know, savages to some degree. They weren't. Um, but that's how they were painted 
mm-hmm. uh, in a lot mm-hmm. of the the literature and the writings. So nobody wanted to believe any of these stories. Right. You know, it just right. kept, you know, oh, it's just, you know, it, I mean, it, it would be the equivalent of, you know, some, a street person, you know, walking up to you and giving you specific details about something that you're looking for. And you're just going, God, you, you don't know anything. Get away from me. Well, they may know everything. Right. And the Inuit people apparently did. Um, but for British lore, Franklin and his crew became martyrs to science. They were good Christian men who suffered a cruel fate at the hands of Mother Nature. But later, historians framed Franklin as a hubristic imperialist. And more recently, the Canadian government has used Franklin as an argument for Arctic sovereignty. Um, you know, that the Arctic should be, you know, it's its own uh independent nation, if you would, you know, so so it doesn't have all of these um outside uh factions coming in and 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 moving around and tearing it up and claiming this and claiming that and all this other stuff. Um because what they say is that's what Franklin was really trying to do hmm. is he's not just looking for a Northwest Northwest passage. He's looking for the fame and the notoriety of having explored the Arctic and, you know, quite possibly uh, going down in history with, you know, half the Arctic named after him. You know, they, right. they were saying that is what he wanted. He wanted to bring this glory back to his homeland, and it that may have been why um, they trudged in through conditions that were absolutely not favorable to this particular expedition. We don't know because we're, we're no. going based on, uh, you know, if we look at the writings of the time, you know, it, it certainly doesn't paint that picture. Um, but even the Inuit story just tells you how much these men suffered, how sick yeah. they were, how malnourished they were. Um, but I, I, I'll touch on this real quick before we wrap up. I, there, I found an interesting article that talked about the weather conditions in the Arctic at that time. And you think, Matt, it's cold. It's snowy. Everything's <laughs> frozen. But what if I told you that back when when Franklin led this expedition, everything was a lot worse. It was much more cold. There was a lot more ice, thus making this trip significantly more dangerous than it would be in modern times, despite the equipment. Okay. And, and the way they determined this, I thought was so cool. Uh, Researchers took ice cores from two different sites in the Canadian Arctic to reconstruct the climate record. And they took the percentage of melt layers in the ice cores, which shows how warm the summers were, and saw that the expedition took place during a period where there was very little to no summer melt. Hmm. Okay. So even in the middle of June, they remember. We talked about it in June. They're still locked in ice. 
It's not getting any warmer. Yeah. And and after June, they realized it's not getting any warmer anytime soon. Because that was the period where they were. I mean, they were essentially coming off a, a mini ice age. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if this expedition occurs 50 years later, it's quite possibly successful. Yeah. Um, you know, it's impossible to say, but I look at it this way. The, the people like Franklin and Crozier that put everything else aside to say, I'm going to go on this adventure to, to discover the undiscovered. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care what they, what they ate. You know, what they had to do to survive, it doesn't matter. To me, you know, these people should be lauded, you know, as as heroes because they they were the first ones. They were the ones that said, look, we're going to go out in the great unknown and we're going to come back and tell you what we found. You know, look, if if you wanted a little bit of glory for doing something like that, I'm not going to fault you. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. I'm not doing it. You know, so uh, people that are, I mean, you think about it, think about people like uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. I mean, what, what that must have, I mean, Yuri Gregarin. Yeah. I mean, they're going somewhere nobody's ever been. I mean, nobody, we, we, we're leaving this planet, guys. We've already yeah. seen everything we got here. Let's go see what else is around us. Who's going to sign up to be the first person to do that? Yeah. It takes a special kind of person. And, it certainly uh, does. and so, you know, these folks in an effort, you know, to, to, to find out if there was a passage from Europe to the Orient going through the Arctic. I mean, you know, that it, it took a lot of guts and not just for Franklin and him, but his entire crew. Cause like I said, at sure. the beginning, these guys had to know. There's a chance we're not coming back from this. Right. And the, you know, we get, we get spoiled now. Cause even if we go, say we're going into Papua New Guinea in a place that we haven't explored in the jungle, we still have GPS locator beacons. We've got the potential of satellite phones to get in touch with somebody and say, Hey, I, I, I'm not dead. I'm I'm just stuck in this area, whatever. You could call for rescue. You could let your loved ones know. When they left on the ship, that was the end of communication. Yeah. They didn't have radios. They couldn't send a carrier pigeon back to land with a letter from them. So it, it's not shocking that they wouldn't know what happened to the crew and it'd be a mystery for as many years as it was. I mean, this was a big, a huge mystery, a maritime disappearance Mm -hmm. that, you know, a ton of people disappeared, but we now know kind of what happened because of modern technology. And then our, more modern thinking of let's let's actually listen to these people who live here and right. and know what's going on yet 
we still have problems with that when it comes to different mysteries of like cryptozoology and stuff like that, despite learning the lesson here that these Inuit people had been telling you the story of what happened to Franklin and his men for decades. It's in their oral history. You'd still said, eh, well, these people are talking about this giant animal in the forest here. I don't, I think they're lying. They're savages. They don't know what they saw. They're not yep. smart. You got it. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Have we not learned any lessons at all? Some things, yes, possibly could be stories that were made up to keep their children safe mm -hmm. and not travel through the woods. But if you have stories of a, a mysterious animal that has traveled down through generations in an oral history, and they're even still saying, hey, we see it occasionally today. Mm-hmm. Why do we continue to say, ah, these savages don't know what they're talking about? They're mistaken. Yeah. I mean, there, there's probably a lot of people out there going, Adam and Matt, why did y'all talk about this? <laughs> yeah. But one reason, and you'll have to forgive me, my dog decided he was going to start barking for no reason. He's just out there barking, so I apologize. But, um, you're probably asking why did did we decide to do this? Well, there's several reasons. One, this was a giant mystery for a long time, and yeah. Matt and I love to cover mysteries. And and remember, it, put it in perspective: these ships, you know, they they disappeared without a trace. Mm -hmm. Okay, in, in 1848, roughly, mm -hmm. um, it was less than ten years ago. When we found yep. these ships, yep. it has been within the last 10 years. So if we go back and we're having this discussion in 2013, it's still a mystery, right? We right. don't know where those ships right. went. Okay. Right. Just in the last 10 years, we know what's happened. I mean, that's significant. I mean, that is mm -hmm. tremendously significant. Because Which gives you then hope for one of the other disappearance mysteries that we've talked about several times, and that's Amelia Earhart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you think about it; these two ships aren't aren't even, you know. Of course, they're found now, but you know they're they're a drop in the bucket of the of the ships and planes and whatnot that have gone down in the ocean that we have never been able to find even with modern technology. Right, right. And I, one of the other reasons, which I'm not going to go into very, very much detail on, but I'm going to touch on it. This episode is a setup for next episode as well. Right. So despite the, the mystery that was actually solved, um, the, the lessons that maybe we could learn from the, the, the people ignoring the Inuits stories about it, mm -hmm. it put that on today's stories that we get from different tribal people in 
nations like Papua New Guinea or in Asia or whatever that live outside the major cities that tell stories of, hey, there's this giant ape or, hey, there's this six foot tall hairy man out in the forest or I've seen this creature in the oceans off of our island. Mm -hmm. Let's not immediately discount them as being, quote, barbarians and savages and, quote, not learned enough to know what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. Let, let's use this as an example. But also, Matt and I are just fascinated by the 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 sheer desire of these men to explore and to learn new things. Mm -hmm. Because I know for me and and probably for Matt, if we had the ability to go out and and do an expedition to try to find one of these creatures that we talk about and it be taken seriously, us not looked at as whack jobs, mm -hmm. you know, oh, we're going out here and we're screaming for a Bigfoot in the woods. We're doing a mating call for Bigfoot in the woods. If we could actually, we would do it in a heartbeat because we, we like the exploration. We like the learning mm -hmm. of new things. And just the chutzpah of these people to be able to do that. Yeah. It's all, and, and it's always, um, incredible to me that when you, when you find an answer to a mystery, you know, I was like, ah, see, it wasn't what you thought. Well, yeah. that's okay. Because we found these ships. Right. You know, right. we have a better understanding of what these men went through and, you know, how e even the, the best prepared ships were no match for the weather in the Arctic at that time. Um, it, it, I, I look at this as the same as if we, we go hunting for Bigfoot and we find Bigfoot and we find out that it's a, a, a rare undiscovered species of primate. Um, it's, it's not, it's not magic. It's not, uh, it's not interdimensional. Alien. You know, it's not alien. It's just an undiscovered species. Number six, see, we told you. Okay. But look what we found. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we, we found a species that has managed to survive for all this time without being discovered. You know, that's, mm -hmm. you know, that that's earth shattering in and of itself, even if, even if all of the, the, the legends and stuff don't necessarily come true, it's still incredible that you get an answer to this. And this is one of those mysteries um, where we had an answer. And it's amazing that we've got these ships, you know, to look at and to study and to understand, you know, what it was like for these guys, you know, what it was like to, to leave your family behind and make this trip into the great unknown. Right. Right. So, I mean, you know, we get, we get a little, we get a little passionate here towards the end when we start talking about some of this stuff and that's okay. I think that's what, that's what drives Adam and I to continue and do these things and, and look at some of these stories a little differently uh, than maybe the average person would. Mm -hmm. But if, if you guys think like we do, you know, if, if you guys think we're totally 
off our rocker? Let us know. And the best place to do that is in our Facebook group. Um, we have so many people in there sharing stories and personal experiences and jokes and and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's really a great place. And you don't have to be worried about people calling you a whack job. It's a safe space. We just want to hear some really great stories. And don't forget to check out our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com. And on our website, you can find uh, links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise, like that that new, uh, you need that new thermal thermal mug to keep your drinks cold by the pool this summer. Uh, you need that, that, uh, that cool tank top, you know, to wear with the, the skull Mike logo on it, something like that. You can find it, uh, on our website. You can also mm-hmm. listen to the show and you can become a patron. And we, we want to thank everybody who has donated, uh, to the work that Adam and I do. We sincerely appreciate it. Our, our Patreon catalog is huge now, so tons of bonus content. Uh, it's never been a better time to get in there and get you some extra Graveyard Tales. So, until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.